Welcome to the Start Me Up Podcast, part of the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network in association with MSW Media. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnson in D.C. Today, my returning guest is Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg. He always makes me feel good. I'm so glad he's here. There's lots to talk about, but before we get into it. The Start Me Up podcast is independent, listener-funded, and woman-run. Visit patreon.com slash startmeup to see the variety of tiers offered, including the option to get a bonus What's Up episode every Tuesday. It's kind of like my online journal where I get a little more personal and I talk about whatever's on my mind. There's also an ad-free tier with a much shorter intro. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup. Now please enjoy my conversation with Simon Rosenberg. Welcome back to the show, Simon. It's good to be here, Kimberly. Thank you so much. Of course, it's always good when you're here because you're optimistic and oh my God, you're, I know I always say that when you're here, but it's so effing important. (laughs) So I'm just going to roll with it, but I want to jump right in. I love your feed. I love everything about your messaging. It's wonderful. And for those of you who are not aware, Simon uh, was one of the few who accurately predicted 2022 when we were hearing there was going to be a big red wave. Simon was like, no, I don't, these are not the numbers that I'm seeing. And so uh, I, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I just want to ask you your pinned tweet right now. It says I've endorsed six swing candidates in Virginia. If they hold, if they win, we hold the Senate, flip the house. So can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, Virginia is a very, very important election and I, there are lots of important elections in November, but I'm, in my community, Hopian Chronicles, I'm, I've asked people who follow me and are engaged in the community I'm part of to make a commitment to really make sure that we win in Virginia. We've had a great year. I mean, we had a great 2022. We've been winning elections all across the country, overperforming from Jacksonville up to Wisconsin, right? Mm-hmm. And in Colorado. But we need to end the year strong. We, you know, this is the last election before the general election next year. And it's critical that we end with on an upbeat and note. And right now, Virginia is really close. The early vote, Republicans are doing a little bit better, I think, than we expected. Uh, it's not really surprising because Youngkin has poured, Governor Youngkin has poured so much money in mm-hmm. to the race, and we're starting to see the evidence of that investment that he's made. So they're performing a little bit better, and we just have to respond. And so what I've asked people to do is there are six races based on my uh, consulting with people on the ground and the people running the races and the national party and everybody else that there are six races that if we win, we should be able to flip the house to Democrat and keep the Senate and, and have a real blow to Yunkin in a time where he's trying to become the next guy up, you know, after Trump. And so this is, this race is important for a few reasons. One is it blunts Yunkin who is, you know, could be a serious presidential candidate someday. Mm-hmm. Second is that, you know, if we lose the, the, the state Senate, Virginia will have a trifecta, and it means that they'll pass a very restrictive abortion ban right away. And Virginia is the last state in the South that has where abortion is legal and unrestricted, and it will be devastating for the people of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it, there's so many reasons why this why Virginia matters. And on my Hopium site, I've there are six candidates, four in the House, two in the Senate. That if they all win, we're going to have a very good election day. And the, the election's very close. They need more money. They need volunteers. Um, you know, we need to create more activity there to make sure we have the election we, we want to have. When is that election? What's that? When, what date is the election? So the election is November, you know, it's November 7th, I think, okay. but the early vote has begun. And okay. so 
you know, if you end up volunteering, if you live in Virginia and you're listening, vote today, vote tomorrow. The earlier you vote, the more likely it is we win. When you vote early, what you're creating is you're, um, you're allowing the campaigns to move on to lower propensity voters. And so in every election now, Democrats need to have a vote on day one strategy where we vote at the very beginning mm-hmm. to allow the campaigns to move on to lower propensity voters, which creates more Democrats. And so if you live in Virginia, you know, vote right away. Don't wait. Don't wait till election day. Don't wait till the final weekend. Second is if you want to help in Virginia, do it now. Don't wait. We need we need to drive the vote now. We're a little behind where we want to be and we need to catch up. We can't play games here. I mean, we have the power and the tools to catch up, get ahead, but it only if we all go do the work. And and so early vote has begun by giving money, by volunteering. You're just calling Democrats. I mean, this is all about just turning out Democrats. This is not complicated. All these districts are Biden districts. Yeah. You know, Biden won all these districts. And so we just need, if you make calls, if you text, if you canvass, you're just going to be talking to Democrats. It's the easiest kind of work that we do together, mm-hmm. which is why I hope people will join me and, and really laying their body down here for Virginia in these in these final two weeks. Now, you mentioned how important it is to vote on the first day. That, I'm assuming, carries over, because I saw you doing it in 2022. This is something that we should all be getting used to, right? So we should all be voting the very first day that we're eligible to vote. And, and then I think it also creates a momentum. So if like we start seeing, oh, all these people showing up to vote, it make, it inspires other people and it makes other people want to do it. The way we talk about it in, in organizer English is that it creates both a permission structure for people to vote and social pressure on people to vote. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> these early vote windows are a blessing for the Democratic Party because we have there are more Democrats in America, but we have more episodic voters and Mm -hmm. so turnout really matters to us more Hmm. and there's much more variation in turnout in our party traditionally and so we have this big powerful new tool that we've never had before to do turnout which is exactly what you said is stories and social media people voting a huge citizen involvement in our elections it's very affirming right in a time where we're worried about democracy it's just great to see so many people voting you know and so this, these images of lots of people voting, stories of lots of people voting, create what I call a virtuous cycle of participation. People see others doing it, it puts pressure on them to do it mm-hmm. themselves. They do it, and then they tell their friends they've done it. And so if you do vote in Virginia or in any of the other states where there's elections happening now, Ohio and Mississippi and others, please share your, your I Voted sticker, mm-hmm. You know, put it on social media, share it with your communities, encourage people to vote. We have to be a vote on day one party and we have to be a, a relentless sort of, you know, relational organizing GOTV party. We have to be encouraging all of our networks to vote on day one with us, to vote as soon as possible. This is how we win elections. This is how we've been doing so well in 2022. It's how we've been doing so well in 2023. It's yes, it's a new tactic mm-hmm. for us and it's powerful, Kimberly. It's very powerful new tool that we have to sort of drive turnout to the upper end of what's possible for us. So exciting. I love hearing that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm absolutely, yeah, like you're, you're talking about that. And now in my mind, I can see all the tweets I'm going to be doing and the promotion for voting on day one because it's so important. So uh, thank you for reminding me of that. And I think that's something I want to continue to push. Now, the other thing I want to ask you is, uh, we're dealing with this craziness and sanity of Speaker of the House. And 
I don't know exactly. I've, this is what I know. I've been working all morning, so I've kind of been paying attention. Correct me if I'm wrong. So I believe that uh, Jordan is not going to hold a third vote, and then he called for, I can't remember the dude's name, to be the speaker in the interim. Is that correct? Do I have that correct? Patrick McHenry? Yes. We'll, we'll see if that happens. I mean, the interesting question will be is can they deliver the votes on their own, or are they going to have to get Democratic votes? Will you know, the, the, the MAGA wing, the Matt Getz wing, will they mm-hmm. go along with this? Or are they going to force them to go over and get Democratic votes <clears throat> to get it through? And then if they ask for Democratic votes, what do we get in return? It, it, this is, look, the thing for your listeners to realize is that um, the House wasn't really constructed um, in the way that people understand. The House, like, you know, there are, Many things the founding fathers got right. They didn't get everything right, right? It's not surprising. The House is kind of an odd body in the sense that you have to have 218 in order for it to function. Mm-hmm. You have to have a majority of the vote for it to actually function at all. And we there it, nobody has 218 and won't add 218 until the next Congress because there's somewhere between 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 or 90 you know, MAGAs and various degree of MAGAnists, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the establishment Republican Party, and then there's the Democratic Party. And nobody's going to have 218 until January of 2025, because basically the Republican Party is splintered. And what that means is that it's a little bit hard to understand how this is all going to work um, for the next year and a half, you know, 14, 15, 17 months, whatever it is. Um, even, you know, the speaker pro tem position, they're having to take a vote. Somebody's got to get to 218 to give the speaker pro tem these additional powers just yeah. to pass simple legislation. Um, but then even passing simple legislation gets really complicated because the Republicans don't have 218 for mm-hmm. continuing resolutions or for anything else. So I don't really know how this is going to work. And it's mm. not the case that, well, Democrats should just come in and help them and bail them out, right? right. Their dysfunction because what we're going to be doing if we do that is we're going to be creating a false impression that the Republicans are actually moderating yes. and are actually willing to work to dem- with Democrats on areas of national interest. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. They're not willing to negotiate. There was no negotiation the last continuing resolution. McCarthy didn't negotiate with Jeffries on the debt ceiling. And it's very critical that Democrats don't get bullied or lulled into doing something that puts lipstick on the MAGA pig, right, mm-hmm. for yeah. the voters and and makes them look more moderate and reasonable than they really are out of desperation to make the country not go off the cliff. And so in essence, what's happening is this MAGA wing of the Republican Party is holding the Congress hostage and they're killing the hostages. And, you know, it's and so I I don't this is going to be very this is not there is no simple, easy solution here, because even if Jeffrey somehow were to become speaker, he still only has 213. Mm And unless there was a significant changing of the rules, that would be sort of unprecedented. You know, he would struggle to get a majority of the vote every time that he needed to get a majority. So this the fact that we did so well in the midterms and, you know, we did much better. We basically denied the Republicans ideological control of the House. And now the Republican Party has, you know, splintered into two. And. It's a significant development, and I think it's fr- frankly far more structurally grave than people really understand. I mean, I've been here for 30 years. I've mm-hmm. worked with people in Congress this whole time. I, I don't know that there's really a deep understanding of how broken Matt Getz. Matt Getz has functionally broken the House. 
you know, Trump and Matt Getz have intervened to break in a major American institution. Trump's ally Tuberville is trying to break the Pentagon. Trump's mm-hmm. ally Rand Paul is denying is denied over 60 State Department officials from being nominated, including 38 ambassadors, including many of our ambassadors in the Middle East. It seems to me that there is an organized effort by Trump and his allies to break the United States government right now. And, and I think it's a serious matter. Mm-hmm. Wow. So let me ask you this. Um, I, I put this out on X or whatever you want to call it. But the idea of, and I don't know if I'm right about this, but this is this was me trying to be optimistic. So, um, and I, I put it down as a question to you, like if we get a hard right speaker, how does that play in 2024? And if we get a moderate speech or somebody like speaker or somebody like Jeffries, how does that play out in 2024? Now I get what you're saying that like this is so complicated and weird and different, so we we don't know what's going to happen. But my whole thing, I was like trying to find the optimistic angle of same deal with Roe, right? Like, I don't want them to kill Roe, but I see the benefit of them killing Roe because Democrats are going to be more unified. So do you think that if they get, like, a really hard right speaker that that would unify Democrats, or do you think it would just be such a a horrible thing to happen that we can't even think about it? (laughs) I think think that, you know, we've already seen this in some early data that the standing of the Republicans in Congress have taken an enormous hit and have taken an enormous hit with Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's all, this has already been consequential for 20, uh, for 2024 in the House. I mean, they are they have put made themselves look ridiculous yeah. to the whole country, partisan, angry, petty, all those things. And so I think you know, sort of the likely scenario here is that we pass you know an annual budget this year. We pass some basic Ukraine, Israel, maybe Taiwan funding. And no other legislation passes, mm-hmm. you know, next year at all. Wow. Um, and uh, and that, you know, we focus on just making sure we get a budget through next year. But it's very possible that what Getz did basically was he just basically broke the Congress. Wow. And, and so I think this is going to rebound upon them. Why would you ever vote? If you're a swing voter, why would you ever mm-hmm. vote for that party that broke the Congress? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, they have no argument for re-election right. next year. Right. Wow. So I think this makes it far more likely the House flips. I, I think that, you know, the idea that their party is so weak, they can't stand up to extremists. I mean, you know, if, if they can't so stand up to extremists in their own party, then they don't deserve to govern. Right. And so it's, I think this has all been very beneficial to us. Wow. Um, and look, yeah. I, let me just speak about the election because there's a morning console poll today that's circulating around. It's the latest poll that's getting people nervous. There have been lots of good polls. This is not good poll. Mm-hmm. We're it's very early. Things are very soft. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Republican coalition is uh, has congealed and come together. Our coalition is still spaced out and not focused on the election because our you know we haven't had an election. There's no actual election happening in our side. So where things are in most polling is things are within margin of error. They're close. Um, the Republican coalitions come together, or have, ours hasn't. So when ours comes together, Biden will probably gain another two, three, four points. That's why things being even today is okay with me. I mean, I think we'll we'll pick up. You know, there's 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 we will gain ground over the next six months as our coalition starts to wake up. And I think that that's not going to really happen until like February, March, April of next year, which means we could be in the, a run of 
polling that doesn't feel comfortable for us, but I don't know that it really matters. Hmm. Um, and and then finally, um, you know, I still believe as a strategist, right, as somebody who's like a chess player, mm -hmm. when you move all the pieces on the board over the next 14 months, our pieces are Joe Biden's been a good president, the country's better off. He's standing up to democracy all around the world in a time of crisis. He's worked with Republicans to pass bipartisan legislation. He's made far-sighted investments in, in the future of the country that will create prosperity for 20 to 30 years. Um, and our party keeps winning elections and we're strong and united. And what are they, mm -hmm. right? They're Trump <laughs> and trials and betraying the country and insurrection and you know, sexually abusing women and getting caught for it. They're, you know, they're, they're the biggest mess that we've ever seen in the history of the country. And my view is that as a political strategist, we have more ammunition to, to argue to the swing voters that they're out of the mainstream and dangerous than any party's ever had in, in modern history. Yeah. And so we should be able to, given the way the table is set, we should be able to win this election and I hope win it by a lot so that it looks like a repudiation of MAGA. Yeah. So I'm not worried about any of this. I'm not worried about any of this. I'm not surprised with any of this polling data. Um, I think the most important thing is Biden's raising money. We keep winning elections. He's been a good president. I think, you know, we have a speech tonight um, that he's going to be speaking to the nation. We need, you know, this is a critical moment in his presidency. And as I like to say, you know, in every way possible as we head into 2024, I would much rather be us than them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after this message. Hey, this is Kimberly dropping in real quick. Are you a Patreon subscriber? If not, just go to patreon.com slash start me up. You'll see all the tiers. It's a great way to support the show. Thank you so much. Join me, 48 Hours Correspondent Erin Moriarty, on my podcast, My Life of Crime, as I take on true crime investigations like no other. This season, I'm looking into the labyrinth of crime and secrets within families. I'm cutting straight to the evidence and talking to the people directly involved, including investigators and the families of victims. Listen to My Life of Crime with Erin Moriarty wherever you get your podcasts. Um, okay, you, you, know, you mentioned, and we keep seeing it, that Democrats are overperforming. Yet when you listen to the media a lot of the time, you're basically hearing another story. And so I think a lot of voters are kind of up on this, but I don't know that all of them are. And so what advice do you have to stay sane yeah, and to keep it all real? It's a great question. It's a great question. I, I think that what's happened, I, I've, I've really thought about this a lot. And I just did an interview with Tom Bonnier last week where we caught up and you can come to Hopium and hear us talking about all this for an hour as you know, we hadn't been together in a while and we sort of reflected on, on all this is that I think there's a whole sort of an industry around interpreting polls that is in trouble right now because the polls for reasons that we don't have time to get into today have become a little bit less reliable. Their you know, response rates have gone down. So it's gotten more expensive to do high quality polls and, and so there's more junky polling and, you know, and it's a very diverse and complicated country. It's not easy to poll. Polling is hard anyway. Right. So the, so this whole like complex of people who make their living over interpreting polls, the, the, what Tom and I did is we said, look, there's also all this other data we can use to see where things are outside of polling that may actually present a more holistic and complete picture. 
And what, when we got attacked last year, you know, in our, you know, when we were, when we were, uh, when we were doing our work, it was we were attacked in part because we were using this other data, uh, voter registration data, fundraising data, you know, other indications of intensity, the early vote data, special elections, right? And we were told by all these smart people that have built their businesses around interpreting polling that. Uh, the way we were using this data was illegitimate. It was wrong. It was hopium. You know, it was full right. of hope and delusional, right? That we were kind of one of the most important political analysts in the country describes my work as astrology, like literally wow. claimed I was doing astrology, you know, wow. like tarot cards, right? And, and, and so, sorry, my dog is parking. Okay. And so he doesn't like it sometimes <laughs> when I talk to people and I'm not talking to him, right? And so, um, so I, I think part of what happened in 2022 is that Tom and I said, there's a lot of this other data that exists outside of polling that is legitimate that we have to look at and it creates a more holistic picture, you know, voter registration data and uh, fundraising data and early vote data, special election data. But the system has continued to stay sort of loyal to polling mm -hmm. because that's what people know. That's what these analysts yeah. have used. But polling, what Tom and I did, and I think the threat we represented to the system was that we argued that there's all this other data we have to be looking at too that is equally as important as polling in order to get a complete picture. And so, for example, this year, polling's been mediocre for Democrats, but what matters is how people are voting. And in elections all across the country, we're just like in 2022, we're doing far better than the polling was indicating, right? We're we're eight points ahead in over third in 27 House and Senate special elections. We're running eight points ahead on average of 2020. That's an extraordinary performance. Yeah. We won in Wisconsin. We won in Jacksonville. We won in Ohio by huge margins, right? And so when it matters, and so I think that the ability of polling to describe accurately what's happening in American politics has become uh, harder, and yet the system of analysts are digging in and trying to argue that this is still the most, you know, accurate way mm -hmm. of looking at uh, American politics. And I just disagree with that. I mean, I think the, the way that people are voting again this year, we had the same thing, like we had mediocre or even bad polling in 2022, and then we did much better than everybody expected. Mm -hmm. The same thing's happening now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have mediocre, bad polling, and yet we keep winning elections all across the country, including in red places that nobody thought we were going to win. What would you rather be? Would you rather be ahead right, in the polls yeah. or ahead with voters? <laughs> exactly. Right? And and so it's it's I, I think that there the what I've been surprised by is the political commentariat class has not evolved to allow there to be this other data to be equal of an import. And so, you know, Tom and I and the work we do still represents you know, a challenge to the system, um, and and we've been right and they've been wrong, and and it and hopefully, for all of your listeners, I mean, my the point is is that you can never get freaked out about a single poll. It's mm -hmm. about trends and it's early and it's margin. And remember, you know, if a if, let me just give you one example, right? So if in the morning console poll today, for example, came out and showed that we're down two points in Pennsylvania to, to Trump. If the margin of error in that poll is 4%, which means that we could actually be up by two points. Oh, interesting. <laughs> right? And so part of what we have to get out of our head is that 
these polling is not nearly as accurate or predictive as has been represented. Mm -hmm. Polling is a snapshot in time. It can't predict anything. It just tells you where things are today. Tomorrow's going to be a new day. Everything could change, right? And so it's, first of all, it's not predictive. And second of all, it's, um, you know, it's not as accurate. The way I describe it is that it's more like a sketch than a full-on painting, mm -hmm. right? And so what the Pennsylvania poll told us wasn't that Trump was ahead. It just showed that it was close, mm -hmm. right? But the way it gets interpreted is that Trump is beating Biden by two. But margin of error tells you that that's, you can't actually really say that because there's a, mm -hmm. you know, the, it, he, Biden can be up by two, right? right? Because of the, the nature of the, of the math. And so we, we, have to, we have to break ourselves of the tyranny of sort of these polling-based commentators who I think are misrepresenting in some ways the level of both predictive capacity and accuracy of polling. And, and that's what Tom and I have been working to do over the last year and a half, to sort of right the ship a little bit and right. say that we're spending too much time with this bit of data. There's all this other data we also have to look at, and this data over here looks a lot better for us. I mean, Biden, for example, has a massive fundraising advantage mm -hmm. now over – Trump, you know, that really matters. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's also the fact that Trump is raising money and not giving it to Republicans. He's using it for his own legal fees and everything. And so money's not going into the Republican Party. It's, I'm glad you raised that because it's amazing how little that that's been in the commentary about the money, because he has at least, you know, 50 to 100 million dollars of legal bills next year. Right. right. And so that means that, like, that's. You know, that's two states or a state, you know, where right, we yeah. I mean, it's it's his legal challenges and the money that that he's amazingly spending out of his campaign and not out of his own pocket is an enormous challenge for Republicans. I mean, it's a it's a big deal. It's a huge it's a political burden and it's a financial burden yeah. for them. Wow. And good. And they deserve it. Um, and they deserve every penny <laughs> yeah, of it. They, let me ask you this, because I, I was wondering about this when you were talking about polling. And, I, you know, this is absolutely not my area. So um, how much has polling changed since cell phones and how is it um, affecting what we learn with all these, you know, there's all these new voters and young people who are thankfully very engaged and so do you think that they are part of the equation equation? Are they being called? I mean, or do they even answer? What's the deal? Yeah, with that? I mean, what's happening is the way to think about this is that um, that polling has gotten much harder because response rates mm -hmm. have gone down. Yeah, so to yeah. get a high quality poll, it costs a lot more money. Right. And so guess what? You have less high quality polls. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's sort of a very simple math thing. And you're getting more junky polls or lower sample polls or polls that have to do what's called waiting, where they had one subgroup didn't come in, so they had to sort of guess a little bit. I mean, there's sort of the secret sauce that goes into mm -hmm. making polling. And so, yeah, developing a highly, you know, a, a good sample that captures the electorate well has gotten much harder and much more expensive. And so it means, and the other thing that's happened is there's just, there's been a huge growth in Republican polling. There's a big mm -hmm. chunk of money now, yeah. um, you know, going into producing polls, Rasmussen, you know, all these polls by Republican firms that are in, you know, going into the averages. So it used to be that, let's say there would be, you know, in a given month, there would be two media polls you know, or let's say three media polls, one Democratic poll, one Republican poll, you know, now it's, 
you know, three media polls, three Republican polls, one Democratic poll. And so there's much more there's much more Republican data in the system than there mm -hmm. used to be, which is a problem. Um, and then the other thing is that because the polls are expensive, we're getting more polls of lower sample size, which makes them less accurate, right? And mm -hmm. so, so there's it, it, the the central thing that's happened to polling is that the response rates of people has gone down, and so it's made the accuracy of polling it's diminished the accuracy right. of polling, and and that's just a reality we're living in, which we all have to. I wish the people who did the analysis of all this stuff were more honest about this. Mm -hmm. If you want to read a great story about this, the New York Times, if you have a subscription to the New York Times, had a piece that ran on Christmas Day that I'm heavily quoted in, Tom's quoted in about this very issue about how did the red wave happen? You know, what really happened with the red wave? And where the Times does a very good job at explaining about this problem with more expensive polling and how it's leading to there being more junky, less accurate polling. Hmm. It's just that it, no one's, admitting that, right? So we're still being told that this is still kind of the same way. And, and that's what I'm saying is that like Tom and I in part are trying to dethrone the primacy of polling a little bit um, because it's it's just not as descriptive or as accurate as it used to be. And we have to stop pretending otherwise. Yeah. All right, I have two more questions for you. Um, yeah, fire away. This one, this one I worry about. So I want to know what you have to think. Uh, what are your thoughts? First of all, we found out Cornell West, who is running as an independent, is accepting money from Harlan Crow and that far right wing guy who is paying our uh, Supreme Court justices. And then, you know, of course, there's RFK Jr. There's a lot of, uh, you know, like chatter out there that RFK is really going to hurt Trump more than Biden. But these two particular men running as independents, how do you think that plays out for 2024? I don't think we know yet. And I think what the answer to both is we have to build up Joe Biden and the Democrats. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stronger Biden is, the less they matter. Right. Um, you know, so far, you know, in the poll that I have, you know, wrote about uh, today or yesterday, Kennedy, I mean, in the, the it was the first major poll, you know, Trump, Biden was up two without Kennedy and then he was up seven with Kennedy. So in this <laughs> poll, yeah. So in this poll, Kennedy was taking much more from Trump. And, Interesting. and I, okay. I think the critical thing to recognize when you think about third party is that there has been one successful sort of rogue party, splinter party, third party movement in America. It's called the Never Magas, right? Never Trumpers. Right. Yes. They played a major role in helping elect Democrats. Mm -hmm in 2022 and 2020. And so there's already an established, mature, muscular movement sitting there, helping us get elected, mm -hmm. pulling Republicans away from Trump and giving them to us, mm -hmm. right? And so that's terrifying. If you wanna talk about the third party, rogue party, splinter party stuff, you have to start with Liz Cheney and Bill Kristol right, yeah. because they've proven to be successful in creating, you know, yielding us bringing midwifing Republicans into our coalition. It may not be permanent, it may, mm -hmm. but we'll take it for now. Right, right? yeah. <laughs> the question is, where does Kennedy go in that space? And and the reason I raise this is that the Republican coalition, as we were describing earlier with MAGA, has already splintered. Our coalition is not splintered. Mm -hmm. Biden has no challenge. There is no sort of ideological challenge to Biden. It, the concerns about him have to do more with age mm -hmm. than with sort of his positioning. And so our coalition isn't going to split. And so how much vote is there really available 
to anybody else. And I just don't know the answer to that. It's yeah. why, you know, I will tell you, I've been very cautious about this. But when the no labels thing began, I kept saying, look, there's a real chance that any kind of centrist movement is going to take away more from Republicans mm -hmm. than from Democrats, because I don't think there's a lot of vote for Biden to give up. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Trump, there's a lot of vote for Trump to give up. There are a lot of Republicans. I mean, Ron Brownstein estimates in his writing that about 20, that 80% of Republicans are MAGA, but 20% aren't. Right. And if even 10% of that 20% go to us, they're dead. Yeah. And so, you know, they're in a far more, it is far more likely that a rogue party, splinter party movement ends up helping us than it does hurting us. Hmm. And And that's because of the, specific examples of this election now how does cornell west gain traction i mean the thing the reason why i'm not as worried about kennedy and cornell west as many others is that they're terrible candidates they're <laughs> they terrible. Are, yeah they're terrible i mean cornell west is crazy looking and is like speaks you know he's <laughs> got crazy positions he's back in russia you know like he's not gonna sell he's not an easy sell to voters <laughs> no. and kennedy is also not an easy sell no. right and so could there have been a third party candidate i mean i think part of what made jill stein you know effective was that she seemed she wasn't scary right she yeah. wasn't she wasn't wild you know she right. looked like a suburban mom and mm -hmm. you know and she you know so she was kind of docile mm -hmm. And so she just filled the, you know, the vessel, right? The vessel got filled. Cornell West and Robert Kennedy are not docile. They're not, no, they're not, not user friendly. They're not <laughs> attractive candidates. <laughs> yeah. And and so I, I'm, I think we can't, what I say to groups when I speak to them is don't give people power they don't have themselves. Yes. Make Robert Kennedy and Cornell West earn our fear. Right. As opposed to give them power that they've not earned. So we good. need to be spending in these final next 13 months, right? We need to be talking about us much more than we talk about them. We mm -hmm. talk about them too much. You know, I say to my Hopium members that two thirds of our public communication should be positive. Yes. One third and about us and one third should be about them. Yeah. But I don't ever want to see another tweet about Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? I mean, we all know <laughs> who she is. I mean, we spent too much time talking about all the crazy people we need to be spending more time talking about the good works of Joe Biden and mm -hmm. Democrats. And so it's not that we don't pay attention to them, but we can't, it's like rubbernecking, right? It's like right. when an accident happens, everybody slows down. We spend too much time looking at the train wreck and not enough about the beautiful train station that we're coming into, whatever you want to call it, right? right. And so um, I, I think that I'm not as worried about all this as many are. And and because I think that could a third party candidate have emerged that would have been really dangerous for us? Yes. Have they? I'm not sure they have. Well, I feel better now. And you're absolutely right about not just giving them that power that they have to earn it. So uh, thank you for that. I'm going to use it. I'm going to use a lot of stuff you said today. So I'm just stealing from you blatantly. Um, Go for it. <laughs> I, we're all in this together. You know, we're all big, happy, dysfunctional family together. You know? And then, I mean, this whole I'd say this whole show is kind of an answer to that question. But maybe you can just like put it all together in a fun little package that what do we have to be hopeful about? Well, Joe Biden's been a good president. Yes, the country is better off. Um, we keep winning elections all over across the country. The Democratic Party is very strong. And, you know, they're just way too crazy. And, <laughs> and I think voters know it. And so my hope is that we don't just win next year, but that we win by a lot. And yeah. that the message of the election is a 
huge, clear repudiation of MAGA and the direction the Republican Party has gone in. That's what we have to hope for, and, and that's what we have to work for. I mean, I, I use the term hopium, and to me, what hopium is, is hope with a plan, right? right? It's not just that we want the election or hope the election will be better. We're going to do the work to make it so, and that we have more power and agency over our future and our destiny than we understand. Yeah. I think that's what we did in 2022. I think millions of people just said, I'm not going to let my democracy slip away. And they went to work and they created an amazing election that nobody thought was possible. <laughs> you know, we have to do it again. We've been doing it all year. We need to do it in Virginia in a few weeks. We need to do it, you know, all across the country next year. And because the threat is real. I mean, we, you know, I, I give Joe Biden a lot of credit. I mean, he gave a speech in democracy a few weeks ago where mm -hmm. he said in perhaps the most stark and uh, blunt ways that, you know, MAG has become a threat to our democracy, perhaps unprecedented threat. Mm -hmm to our democracy and to our country and our history. And so it means that for all of you who are listening today, you know, if you, there was ever a time in your life to donate money or volunteer in a campaign to write postcards or canvas or text or phone, it's now. I mean, this is, it's time is now. Mm -hmm. I mean, history is calling us and we have, we've risen to the occasion, but we've got to keep doing it because, you know, if American democracy were to falter, it would be a tragedy, not just for this country, but for the whole world. For the whole world. And, yeah. and you know, so we've, the stakes are high. We, we're doing well. Uh, Got to keep our heads down and keep doing the work. And, you know, hopefully we'll have a good election in, in November uh, in Virginia and elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for the advice. Like I said, I'm going to be tweeting out some of your ideas and stuff like that. But, of course, I just love when you're on. You always make me feel better, and I know you make my listeners feel better. And you're informative, so it's like, even if there's some scary news out there, at least we have the tools to like figure it out. So thank you for that. And before I let you go, please tell everybody where to find you. Yeah, I mean the primary way to find me is at Hopium Chronicles. It's a site, that, you know, on the Substack platform. It's a but it's a website basically with an email newsletter. And it has a very robust community. I mean, we have tens of thousands of people there now and people, you know, work together on projects and they learn how to, you know, for example, I did a thread a few weeks ago and I said, how is, what are people doing in Virginia? And hundreds of people told the story of what they were doing hmm. to encourage others to, to, you know, I was calling with sister district or I was phoning with this group or texting with this group. So people come to our community to do what you said. Kimberly, which is not to dwell in the scary stuff, but to take the anxiety that we all have and channel mm -hmm. it into concrete action, right? Which is the most healthy way to manage this yeah. <laughs> moment. It's why, I, you know, I'm doing it myself, frankly, through this work. I have tons of anxiety about where we are, but I'm not, I'm living in the place of, okay, I'm anxious. What am I going to do about it? Right. right. And then I'm also on, I still call it Twitter, um, <laughs> at Simon, Simon WDC. I'm not going to call it X. It's ridiculous. And, um, but my primary place, I'm also aware that, you know, we are in the end, the end days of mm -hmm. X. I mean, it's at some point it is going to stop and it is not going to be there for us forever. And mm -hmm. we have to make, I mean, that's why I've built this other alternative community around a very powerful platform that I think is going to be a bigger part of our future going forward very respectful to readers, you know, there's no, you know, there's no negative comments. Right. I mean, it's just, it's a healthy, happy, you know, space. And I really thank the Substack team for giving us such a powerful platform to do the work that we need to do. 
Very cool. Well, I mean, I definitely I have your phone number, so I'm not going to lose touch with you completely. But I definitely want to keep you close. So <laughs> everybody should Kimberly, go join. <laughs> reach out whenever you want. You know, you're one of my favorites. And I, I really appreciate what you do and your attitude and your fight and your you know your grit and all that. And so just whenever you need me, just give me a call. I will. And thank you. And you know, you can find me on Twitter at author Kimberly. And then my pin tweet has all the info until Twitter's gone. But Simon, thank you so much again. Thanks, Kimberly. Wow.